0: Is a beautiful day out. And what a wonderful song to sing in light of today's text that the Lord is our salvation. I mean, I guess that's a great song in light of every text, but today's text especially. So if you will go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we are all the way to Luke 15. <laughs> Is your celebration over there? We'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 10 today. And I'd like to start off with prayer this morning, as I think we always should, before we go to God's Word. And it's always important, I think, that as, as whoever is up here and preaching and is teaching and is about to pray, um, that you not just listen to the words, but pray with, pray with me. Pray with me this morning for a couple of things, that one that, this is my hope from today's text, is that the love of God, that the love of God and the glory of His grace would be made abundantly clear. It would be made abundantly clear. Studying this passage has made it clearer for me. It's been very helpful. It's been very impactful. And I pray that He would do that for you this morning and for everyone else in this room. So join me uh, as we go to God's word and join me as we pray to Him that He would do that. He'd make the
1: glory of His love and grace abundantly clear to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And to give thanks to you, to give thanks to you seems not enough. To try to conjure
0: up in our minds the the magnitude of who you are and to be able to try to put in human words to explain the magnificence of
1: your love, we will all but fall short. We pray, God, that you would take these feeble words this morning. And that
0: you would magnify them in our ears, in our minds, and in our hearts. That your name would be praised in our lips, not just this morning, but as we leave here, God, that your name would be praised around the lunch table, and in the car ride on the way home, and when we get home, and in the workplace, and throughout the week, and as we gather to one another, that we would continue to praise your name, in light of the great and awesome love that you have shown us and continue
1: to show us. Be merciful to us this morning, God. Be merciful to us, Lord. And open our ears. Be gracious to us, God, and open our eyes. Continue to run after us, God, and soften our hearts. Make us like you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Now, if you're anything like me, if you're anything like me, one of the things you may know, but you very rarely think about, is the fact that God is happy. God is happy. right? We tend to think of God in a lot of ways, and You know, when you think of God, you might think of his love. You might think of his grace. Maybe you'll think of his mercy. Maybe you'll think of his kindness, just how generous he is. Maybe you'll even think of how wrathful he is, how how holy he is, and therefore, how much he hates sin. And you would be right. You would be absolutely right to think of God in these ways. But do you ever think about the fact that God is happy? Like, he's a very, very happy God. Maybe you tend to think of God as grumpy. Maybe you kind of see him as a little bit gloomy, like kind of an angry dad sometimes. He's just like an angry dad. He's ready to discipline. He's just waiting for you to mess up. He just wants to correct you all the time. Is that how you view God? Maybe he just wants to teach you a lesson. He's constantly wanting to teach me a lesson. But the Bible teaches us that God is perfectly happy. He's perfectly happy, and he's very, very joyful. He's very joyful. Jesus, in fact, he often said that he desired for his joy to be in us. Right? He said, these things I say to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy, therefore, may be full. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, verse 23, he says, in in regards to coming into the kingdom or coming to salvation, He says, to enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. In fact, Paul writes again in 1 Timothy, referring to the gospel. He says, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Blessed means happy. Blessed basically means happy. He's saying saying, the gospel of the glory of the happy God. So that means that this is an aspect of his nature. It is the nature of God to be happy, to be joyful. And so this means that he's been this way from all of eternity. From all of eternity, and therefore we can understand then that before anything was made, God was happy
1: in and of himself. Fully content. Fully joyful in and of himself,
0: meaning God is happy in who he is. He's happy in who he is and who he has been, and he has been fully happy for all of eternity as a triune God. As a triune God, as Father, Son, and Spirit. He's enjoyed He's enjoyed this triune fellowship
1: in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfectly, perfectly happy.
0: So... The reason for which God created the universe, the whole reason for which God created everything we see today, it was an overflow. It was an outpouring, it was an overflow of his joy and love for himself. It was an overflow of joy and love that caused him to express that joy in creation and to put on display the glory of his happiness, of his awesomeness of his everything and he wanted in that to create an image bearer not out of need out of love not of joy he created an image bearer that's you and me that would enjoy fellowship with him okay kind of to join in as it were in the fellowship of the trinity to join in in the fellowship of the trinity that he had from all of eternity okay so he created us to join in not as god not as God, but as image bearers and worshipers. As worshipers, experiencing then the joy of knowing and beholding him. That's what we were created for. And in that, in that we would live
1: joyful, obedience to this perfect, holy, and happy God. That's why he created everything. And, of course, we know the story,
0: right? The great tragedy. The great tragedy is that man denied his purpose. He denied his purpose to love and enjoy worshiping the one true God and living in joyful obedience to him, and he instead sought his own glory. He sought his own glory. This is what happened in the garden. This is what happens throughout the rest of history. Everyone born out of Adam seeks his own glory. It's the great problem. It's the great problem, but God's plan was not destroyed. God's plan was not destroyed, but in fact, it had taken on its full effect. It had taken on its full effect. And what I mean by that is that God created this perfect world, but He allowed it to fall. He allowed it to fall so that all His attributes, all His attributes, might be able to be put on display namely his mercy, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, and of course his justice, his justice. So the fall of man would not destroy the joy of God. It would not destroy the joy of God because God enjoys being who he is and fulfilling all his purposes. Meaning that through the redemption of man, Through the redemption of man, through the the plucking of sinful man out and, and bringing sinful man back to himself, God's glorious grace and mercy would be displayed for all the world to see. As he redeems man for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his own joy and ours, God redeems. And this is what today's text is all about. God doing what he had designed
1: and what he had ordained to do from the beginning to seek and redeem a people back to himself, which brings God great glory and therefore great joy.
0: So our main point today, if you have your hand out, if you don't, there's one back by the offering box back there and all of the Text we're going to read today is also in the back of that handout, but the main point of today's text, I believe, is this: is that our God, our God is a pursuing God that enjoys his work of redemption. Our God is a pursuing God that enjoys and makes him happy
1: to perform his work of redemption should be there by now. Luke 15,
0: starting in verse 1, says this, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told him a parable, saying, Okay, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, And go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep, or my sheep which was lost, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner
1: who repents. This is Jesus' lesson to us this morning. May we have ears to hear it.
0: If you remember, if you remember, Jesus has been preaching all along that it was not the healthy, it was not the healthy but the sick. It's not the, it's not the self-fulfilled, but it is the hungry. It's the thirsty. It's those who long for righteousness, who long for fellowship with God. It's the broken. It's the poor, the downtrodden, the rejects. It was these kinds of people It was these kinds of people who knew their need for a Savior. It was these kinds of people who knew there was no hope of fellowship with God in themselves, that there had to be something outside of themselves in order to have fellowship with God. It was these people that would get the kingdom, that would enter into the kingdom. Jesus demonstrates over and over again that he has a love, a love for the broken and the outcast a deep love for the broken and the outcast, And so it's not surprising that it says in verse 1 that these kinds of people flocked to him. These kinds of people just were drawn to him. right? They were were coming to hear more. I want to hear more of what this Jesus has to say about repentance and salvation. I want to know more about what Jesus has to say about forgiveness and righteousness. Which to a sinner... To, a, to someone who recognizes their sin. They know they're in trouble with God. Those things are music to their ears. Those kinds of things are absolute music to their ears. The message of repentance, forgiveness, salvation. It draws in those who desire such things. It draws them in. I want, I want forgiveness. I know I need it. What is this? What is this repentance you speak of? I long to hear the words of you, Jesus, because I need to be forgiven. But at the same time, it pushes away, it pushes away those who think they have no no need for it. I don't need forgiveness. This message that Jesus has, it's foolishness to me. It's foolishness. And so those who know they need it are drawn And we see that those who are being drawn to him, we have basically two categories here of social rejects. Two categories of social rejects. We have the tax collector, and we have the sinner. Okay, so the tax collector, as you may know, is kind of looked bad upon by Israel, right? They're they're kind of a traitor. They're a traitor of Israel. They're essentially employees of Rome, and therefore, they might as well be citizens of Rome, a Gentile. In the eyes of Israel, out of the promises of God, outside the covenant of God, Gentile. And then you have the sinner. You have the sinner. This would be any perpetual lawbreaker. Essentially, the the irreligious of society, the drags of society, the pariah of society, the scum, the prostitute, the fornicator. They probably make their money in scandalous ways also. Very, very Unclean. Both of these camps would be rejects and considered unclean. And so, therefore, any connection, any connection to these people by the religious folk, they would say any connection to these people would make you unclean, which is such silly, self-centered, proud, man-made religion to, to keep the needy at arm's reach because it might make you unclean. Such silly, self-centered, proud, man-made religion. But that's exactly what we see the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling about. That's what they're grumbling about. These types of people. These types of people, the Jewish leaders would have nothing to do with. Nothing. And so it says in verse 2 that they began to grumble or complain, right? You can kind of picture it. Picture Jesus, is, he's sitting and he's eating with these people, these sinners, these tax collectors, these, these pariahs of society. And then inside one of these little like, huts or something, you can picture there's a door or a window. And these Pharisees are kind of peeking in the window. They're kind of standing in the doorway, and they're just kind of gossiping to one another, kind of murmuring to one another, like some kind of like self-righteous church gossips. And they're saying, this man, this man, he receives sinners. Look at him.
1: Look at him. He receives sinners, and he eats with them. He eats with them. How disgusting! How disgusting! That's their heart. That's their heart right now. And this word
0: "receive" comes from the word "decomai," which means what you might think it means—to receive. It is a general welcoming or their acceptance. But in fact, the word here that's used is, is prostecomai. The word is prostecomai, which carries with it a greater reception. A greater reception is, is actually one that looks forward to, like an eagerly looking forward to receiving. It's, it was reserved, it was a word reserved for, for family. It's a word reserved for someone you would consider family. And so that, that's what they're saying. This man receives them like family. This man received them like family and like friends. And so they were appalled. They were appalled that Jesus would treat these people like family and that he would even eat with them. Which, of course, if you remember in this culture, to eat with somebody was to consider them family. It was to really accept them and kind of say that, I, I accept you as you are. I accept you as you are. And this was all the religious leaders needed to hate Jesus. It's just really all they needed to hate Jesus. They had a lot of other reasons in their head. They called him Beelzebul. He did signs in the power of Satan. They they were thinking of all these things to to hate him. And this definitely helped their cause. This man claimed to be God. Make no mistake, they knew that was his claim. It's one of the reasons they killed him. But this man that claims to be God, he eats with those and as a friend with those who have rejected God's law. How could this happen? How could this happen? If he were God, as he claims, he, well, he would be eating and drinking and fellowshipping with, well, with us. Of course, if he were God, he would be fellowshipping with us. How could he choose the pariah and the reject over us? Essentially what is going on here. There's some jealousy here. This, this grumbling and this complaining. Was really rooted in a self-righteousness. So we've talked about before. It's it's rooted in a really in an entitled heart. It's an entitled heart that says, God owes me, because I check a few boxes of the righteousness list, which is like every man-made religion. In fact, even if you're irreligious, And you're a human being and you have some sort of view of the world that whether you call the universe, you call it God, or you call it Allah, or you call it Jehovah, or you call this this master of the universe something, every human being outside of Christ perceives him in this way, that he is like a giant piñata, that if I beat him with my good
1: deeds, blessings pour out. Or like a judge that I can bribe. I can bribe with my good works.
0: I just, I just give him a few good works. And of course, now he owes me. He owes me heaven. He owes me blessings on earth. He owes me blessings in heaven. And that's exactly the way every man-made religion works. And that's exactly what was happening here. It's a total misunderstanding of the holiness of God. It's a total misunderstanding of the holiness of God. It's a total misunderstanding of what we actually deserve, like his wrath It's a total misunderstanding of how God loves. It's a total misunderstanding of how God loves. Namely, unconditionally. Unconditionally, to which Jesus is going to show them or tell them three parables. There are three parables birthed out of this murmuring, out of this complaining. They're all about lost things. They're all about lost things. Lost sheep lost coin, lost son. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And he's going to be showing really a distinction between how the world and how man-made religion views the lost, right? And then how God views the lost. There's a distinction. There's a huge gap. The first two parables, the first two which we'll cover today, are about how God seeks the lost, and the last is how God receives the lost. So the first two are about how God seeks, and the last is about how God receives. But they're all directed at these Pharisees who do not love as God loves. They're directed at them saying, you think you know God, and but Jesus is saying, you do not know me. And if you knew me, you would know my Father also, and so you are nothing like me, Pharisees. You are nothing like me. You do not love like me. And so our first sub point is this point one God's love, God's love seeks the lost, it brings repentance and celebrates his success.
1: God's love seeks the lost, it brings repentance. And it celebrates, it celebrates his success. Now, I love love the way Jesus starts the parable. He starts the parable
0: by bringing them into the story, by essentially asking them to imagine themselves as shepherds. Right? He says, he says, what man among you? if he had 100 sheep. So he's basically saying, think of yourself as a shepherd, which is funny because they were accusing Jesus of being unclean by associating with unclean. And if you were to tell a Pharisee to think of yourself as a shepherd, they thought shepherds were the most unclean. They were the lowest of the low. To think of yourself as a shepherd would have made you unclean. Just imagining it. This is how silly they are. But just imagining themselves as shepherds would have made them unclean. So Jesus is like poking at their ridiculousness and basically making them think of themselves as unclean people, which would have driven them crazy. It's like, I'm not allowed to think of elephants. Well, think of elephants. Oh, God, i got to get out of my head. They had immediately were offended by the fact that Jesus even asked them to think as a shepherd, which a Pharisee would never associate with the shepherd nevertheless think of themselves as one. But he's poking at the ridiculous man-made ideas. But Either way, Jesus calls them to imagine being a shepherd. He says, imagine you have a hundred sheep and imagine that one just kind of wanders off. One just wanders off. And he says, would you not, essentially, would you not leave the rest and go and get that one sheep? To which they all would have said, well, yeah. Well, absolutely. Regardless of how they feel about shepherds, they definitely love sheep. Sheep are valuable. They're valuable for clothing. They're valuable for food and sustenance. They're valuable for their religious sacrifices. They're very, very valuable. So they're, so far, check. We're in agreement. Yes, we would go. We would go. And Jesus continues and he says, well, not only would you leave the 99, but would you not seek until you find it? And they would say, of course. Of course, sheep have value. In fact, there would be no world in which I do not come back with that sheep. That sheep is valuable. Jesus is saying that then, well, if you being evil, if you being evil know how to pursue a lost sheep, and you're willing to go after that sheep, and you're willing to grab that sheep weighing an average weight of 70 pounds, and put it on your shoulder and lug that sheep all the way back. You're willing to go through all that for this sheep. And you're willing to invite your friends in to rejoice with you over this sheep. How much more would God,
1: being righteous, seek the lost human soul? How much more value is the soul of a person than a sheep? It's infinitely more valuable. The people in the room are probably starting to connect the dots. They're probably
0: starting to connect the dots a little bit. Jesus is saying that, listen to me, when I receive sinners, when I receive sinners, I am like a shepherd. I'm like a shepherd. I'm like a good shepherd who loves his sheep, and I will leave the 99, and I will go after the few. I will leave the majority and go after the few. The one represents the few broken versus the many self-righteous. Okay, I will leave the many. I will go after the few. And these few, yes, they've wandered. Yes, of course, they have strayed. But he says, I will go. I will go. I will go after them. I will pick them up. I will put them on my shoulders and I will carry them because they are too weak and too feeble to do this on their own. And I will bring them home. And when I do, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. Think about this, Mr. Pharisee. If the, if the effort of a shepherd who finds a sheep is worthy of a party, how much more is the work of God? How much more is the work of God who goes after image bearers of God? Who goes after the image bearer? When the image was broken by sin, I'm coming to restore it. I'm coming to restore that. These who have been lost, they were dead in their sin. They're outside of the covenant relationship with God, they're under God's wrath. And now I am bringing them back into relationship with God. I am restoring them. I am saving them. How much
1: more is this worthy of joy? So why do you grumble? Why do you grumble? Because you'd rather lead them to their grave, which is what they were doing in their man-made religion. They were leading them to their spiritual grave. And that's the contrast.
0: That's the contrast that Jesus really wants to make here is the grumbling Pharisee that contrast the joy of the Lord. The grumbling self-righteous versus the joy of the righteous. In fact, that's what Jesus is says, saying next. The next verse, he says, I tell you. I tell you, in the same way, there will be, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and then over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance jesus kind of leaves the parable of just for a second he leaves the parable of just for a second he, he begins to kind of make eye contact with the pharisees can you see it can you imagine it right he, he's pointing at them he's pointing at them he says i tell you i tell you you may grumble you may complain and actually, you may hate these lost and broken people, but I tell you, God is happy. You're in contrast to God right now. God is happy. Now, of course, he's not happy at their sin. No, no, no. He's not happy over their sin. He does not rejoice in their lostness, but he rejoices in their repentance. He rejoices in their repentance, And they're turning from their sin to God and they're turning their back on their sin their love affair with the world they turn their back on their love affair with their sin and their flesh and all their selfish desires and they say no I want God instead whatever comes I want him and I turn my back and I face Christ and he rejoices in that act it's an act of the mind that changes an act of the heart that feels differently now about your sin and about God. He rejoices in that change. This change is caused only by the work of God. It's changed only by the work of God who pursues. It's changed only by the work of God who chases and the one who goes
1: and the one who gets. Repentance is rooted in God's pursuit. Let me tell you, those whom God pursues, he does not fail. He does not fail. He always gets. God seeks until he finds. And when he finds them, they always repent. He does not fail. You see, God says, Come as you are.
0: Come as you are. Do not fix yourself. You cannot do it. Come as you are. I receive you like family. Sinner, broken as you are, outcast as you are, dirty as you are,
1: filthy as you are, but I will not leave you as you are. I will change you. I will change you. In fact, my love... It is my love, my
0: unconditional, pursuing love that began repentance in you. Actually, it's the same love that will continue repentance in you. It's the same love that will continue to work repentance in you. And in that repentance, God and all of heaven throws a party. Every time. Every time a sinner repents, God throws a party. Why? Why? Because the kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom that was destroyed at the fall is advancing. The kingdom of darkness is being overthrown. It's the whole purpose for which Jesus came. It's the whole purpose for which Jesus came, to magnify the glory of his grace, remember? To magnify the glory of his grace
1: by seeking people such as these, such as you, Such as me. We serve a glorious, loving, missional God. We serve a God who is willing to leave his throne
0: that enter into time and space, enter into creation that was filled with hatred and sin and darkness. He did not stay where it was pretty and perfect. He entered into humanity. He entered into humanity not to rub elbows with the social elite, not to rub elbows with them, but to pursue and seek not his friends, but his enemies, his enemies. Is this not the work of a glorious and loving and pursuing and missional God who enjoys rescuing those who are lost? Absolutely. So, so stop grumbling, Mr. Pharisees. Stop grumbling, Mr. Pharisee, Pharisees, because God is happy. God is happy, but you can't even see it. God is happy. In fact, I am standing right in front of you, he says, I'm right in front of you, and I I came to do what no other man could do. Throughout all of redemptive history, man had failed over and over and over, and now Jesus enters into all of creation, and he does what no man could ever do. And so now he's saying to them, not only is God seeking, but I am seeking and redeeming. Stop grumbling. I am pursuing and restoring. And I am reconciling a very lost people back to God. And in this, not only is God glorified, I am glorified. I am glorified. In their repentance, I am glorified, Jesus says. In their turning from self to God, I am glorified. And in my glory, I am happy and I rejoice. Won't you join me?
1: Won't you join me, Mr. Pharisee? This is such a gracious parable an offer for these Pharisees to rejoice, to celebrate with him, to pursue with him. Of course, they didn't. Most of them
0: anyways didn't. To which Jesus essentially says, as for you, next verse, as for you, who say you need no repentance.
1: Meaning, you believe you're good with God because of your life that you live. You believe that God is good with you because you follow the rules. There's no joy in heaven for you. There's no joy in heaven for you. There's no joy for anyone, over anyone who believes this. But instead, instead only the crushing Glorious weight of God's wrath
0: remains upon that person. There's no joy.
1: Just glorious, weighty, crushing justice. It's God's desire that everyone would repent and receive this party, and enter into his joy. But yet some will cling to their self-righteousness. Some will yet hear this today and cling to their good works.
0: They'll cling to their sin, and they will not let go. And for that person, only his wrath remains. But if you would let go,
1: If by God's grace, you would let go of your sin, let go of your love affair with this world, he would change you. He would make you new, and he will celebrate and throw a party over your repentance. Jesus
0: continues. He continues with a second parable, much like the first. Much like the first. So Jesus has gone from a shepherd now to a woman. From a shepherd to a woman. Now, if we thought Pharisees were offended before. Now, Jesus says, imagine that you're a woman. Okay. Shepherds were unclean. Okay. Women, they were unrespected. So this is another poke at their pride. This is another poke at their pride. No self-respecting religious Jew would ever think of themselves as a shepherd, and they certainly wouldn't think of themselves as a woman. Okay. Quick parentheses here. Jesus has no problem sharing the attributes with women. In fact, that's who these parables are about. The shepherd's about Jesus. The woman's about Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd in this story, and Jesus is the woman in this story. In fact, often throughout scriptures, God is demonstrating feminine attributes. Feminine attributes. What do you mean? I thought he was father. Yes, he is father.
1: and In so much as he is king, leader, God is spirit. He made man and woman in his image.
0: So we see these played out throughout Scripture. We see God as nurturing. We see God as nurturing. We see him desiring to gather as a mother hen gathers. He doesn't mind being referred to as a mother hen. It doesn't bother him in the the slightest. We see in the Psalms that God is like a nurturing mother that weans her child. God has no problems being compared to a nurturing, weaning mother. See, the Pharisees had no concept of this idea of the image of God. The image of God, which is why they devalued other humans. They devalued the shepherd. They devalued women because they were not like them. God made man and woman, both in his image. In male and female, I created them. In my image, I created them. In fact, all the wonderful attributes that are very distinct to women, such as nurturing, mothering, protecting, loyalty, and so much more, these all reflect God's image, and they communicate who God is to the world.
1: Okay, in parentheses there. It's important to know. They were wrong to devalue women. They were very, very wrong. And Jesus is poking at that also.
0: He's poking at that also, at their foolish pride, saying, now what if you were a woman who lost a coin? Who lost a coin. And so Jesus takes them from the first parable here, which is really a story about something lost, something found. I'm sorry, something lost, something sought, something found, and something celebrated. To a second parable, which is also about something lost, sought, found, and celebrated. So the stories are similar, but the first, the first demonstrates really the lengths and depths and extreme measures God would take to seek and to save. The second, though, the second though demonstrates the urgency and the tenacious,
1: tenaciousness of God's heart for his lost possessions. Here's the distinction. So, our point two is this God is determined
0: and resolute to find that which is His.
1: God is determined and resolute to find that which belongs to Him,
0: that which is His. And so, the story goes we have a woman with 10 coins. These coins, now in this culture, most people were very poor. Most were very poor, as you can picture a woman in a very small house with 10 coins, and these could be her only coins in all her possession. They could also be potentially a dowry of some sort. Now, a dowry was something that was given to a woman by her father or maybe by her husband. It was some sort of like a life insurance plan for her. So, but either way, these 10 coins were priceless. They were a very valued treasure for her. And so Jesus is saying, imagine that you're a woman who has these 10 coins of really high value, really high personal value, and you lose one. Now, doesn't it make sense, again, that you would light a lamp, sweep a house, search carefully for it? And that word carefully, it has the idea with that it's a very meticulous or very diligently searching It's a meticulous and diligently searching for something. And then he said, just like he said above, wouldn't you do this until she finds it? Again, there's no world in in which I am not finding this coin. I will
1: find it. I won't sleep until I find it. So the woman, if you can imagine, is to be pictured leaving
0: no stone unturned. She's looking under rugs, under tables, Right. She's going to the trouble of putting an oil into a lamp, which is costly also. Oil was not cheap. She's going to put oil in the lamp, put a wick in it, light it. She's going to shed light in the house in a very, what would be probably a very dark house, especially as the sun started to go down. You wouldn't be able to see anything. So she lights the room. So she grabs a broom and she begins to sweep. So she's seeking, she's searching on crawling around, maybe on this dirt floor to find this one lost coin this coin that belonged to her. It was precious to her. And so, in the same way, we see God is with us. That's the picture. God not only left heaven and entered into our world, but he lit a lamp. He lit a lamp in our dark world. He lit a lamp in the light of the glory of the gospel, the truth, the truth. He he humbled himself and became a man, And he entered into creation, right? Searching through the dirt or under the tables, as it were. That's what it's like for God to enter into creation. He humbles himself. He gets on all fours and digs through the dirt. He digs through the dirt to seek and to
1: save his one lost possession. His inheritance. His inheritance. To seek those who are his. Those who have been his from before the world began.
0: That which belonged to him. As Ephesians 1.18 puts it, he refers to this as the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's us. Those who believe. Those, we are his inheritance. We are the set apart ones. We are the set apart ones. The rescued
1: ones set apart out of the domain of darkness, set apart into the kingdom of his Son. He seeks and searches with great tenacity. Jesus seeks and
0: searches with great focus, with zero distractions, could keep him from doing what he came to do, which was seek and to save his possession. He's focused and determined and set on seeking and rescuing those who are his. And so he's saying again that when she finds it, what happens? She celebrates. She celebrates, but not by herself. Oh no, she invites her lady friends. That's what it's in the feminine, and the name of the word there is her friends are in the feminine. So she gets her lady friends in here to rejoice with her. Why? Because her joy cannot be contained to herself. Her joy cannot be contained to herself. It's as though it's bubbling up inside. She's so excited that she found this coin that she cannot keep it to herself. It must come out, and it must be shared with others. And like good friends, they celebrate with her. They celebrate with her over this coin that she found, right? They don't grumble. They join in her celebration. And so in the same way, Jesus is saying that God celebrates God celebrates. Again, Jesus says here that there's joy, but he he changes it a little bit now. He says, joy in the presence of the angels of God. Joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents and puts their faith in God. So we see throughout Scripture, when we see angels being described, we usually see them surrounding a throne. And they're usually proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. And so the question is, is who is in their presence? It's God. God is in their presence. And so if there's joy in the presence of angels, that means that it's God's joy that is in the presence of the angels. It's the joy of the Lord that is in their presence. And so, essentially, Jesus is saying that God is so full of joy, he's so bubbling over with joy that it pours out into the presence of the angels. It pours out into the presence of the angels as though to beckon
1: all of heaven to join him in his celebration over one sinner who repents. So the angels are witnessing the joy of the Lord and they are
0: witnessing his grace put on display here on earth. That's what they're celebrating, the grace of God. The grace of God. They witness the rescue mission beginning to unfold. They're seeing the rescue mission unfold. The grace of God made manifest or visible. They're seeing the faith of man in God restored. The faith of man in God restored. And so what do they do? They join God in this celebration. In Isaiah chapter 6, you see them worshiping. 700 years later in Revelation, nothing's changed. They're worshiping. But look, in Revelation 5, it says that they sing a new song. There's a new song now that they sing. Instead of of just saying, holy, holy, holy are you, they are now saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. Why? You were slaughtered. For you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is their new song. This is what they sing right now. They are singing it now, a song of praise, a song of worship, and a song of glory, not just for who he is, but for what he and he alone
1: has done. He's rescued you. He's rescued you. And so God rejoices,
0: and they join him. God rejoices, and they marvel and worship angels. Angels who long, long to see
1: the work of God in our lives. For this very reason, they worship the one who gave himself.
0: And so every time God seeks and finds and restores one of his lost sheep or one of his lost possessions, all of heaven rejoices in the work of God. All of heaven rejoices when God's glory and love become this overwhelming power and that's what the love of God does it becomes this overwhelming power it's a power that leads to the knowledge of sin because God's love is so great that he would pursue even me so it it makes me reflect on my sin and who I am in light of him I do not love like him I love self he loves others and this of course by his grace leads to repentance a letting go of myself and clinging to Christ in faith. That's what the love of God does. That's what the love of God does. And all of heaven rejoices each and every time a child of God, I'm sorry, a child of wrath is raised to life and is adopted as a child of
1: God. It's a celebration. As were such as some of you as were probably most of you in this room. It's been my hope as I've been studying this text that God would impact your hearts as he has mine.
0: I've shed tears driving down the road thinking about this passage and
1: God may play the right song in light of it over the unfathomable love of God for me. He causes me often to reflect over my life and
0: reflect over my my sin and my shame that he pulled me out of and continues to pull me out of. And so it's been my prayer as I've been studying this text and preparing for this message has been my prayer and my hope that everyone in here today would see and know
1: and understand and feel as I have felt God's love for you.
0: I join Paul in his prayer when he says he prays for the heights and depths and breadths
1: of God's love for you to be known and felt. I want you to know how incredibly loved you are. I want you to know how incredibly loved you are
0: and how incredibly costly it was for you to be redeemed.
1: You were the lost coin, helpless. You were the lost sheep, wandering off in your sin,
0: wandering off in your ways. I don't care how young you were when you became a Christian, you were lost when he found you. You were absolutely lost. But, but listen, listen, he sought you. He sought after you. He pursued you. He took aim at you. In fact, he saw you before the world began, and from the moment you were born, we're orchestrating your life in such a way that you would see his glory and that you would repent and believe. He did that in you. He did that in you. Like me, he took your hard heart and he broke it open. He took it out and he gave you a new heart. He did that. God did that for you pursued after you and gave you his spirit. And he purchased you not with jewels or money, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His blood purchased for you reconciliation back to God, your maker, the one who made you, your creator. And so if you're here today and you are a Christian, your your faith is in Him. You're trusting in Him. It is because, and only because, God left His throne. It's only because God was willing to leave it all behind and come after you. Don't think of it as all of us in here right now. I want you to think about your name, your heart, your sin. He came after you. On mission, he chased you down.
1: And in love, he granted you repentance and faith. He did that in you. You know how much God loves you. And know how God wants you to join him in the celebration.
0: God wants you to join him in this celebration. Won't you join him in this joy? Won't you join him in this joy? Won't you join him now in his joy of the pursuit of the lost? You who have been found, won't you join him in this joyful pursuit to find, to seek, to seek after? Won't you be like your God? Won't you be like your God who at great cost to himself freed you from your slavery to the flesh? Won't you like beggars who have found the bread chase down other beggars and show them where the bread is at? Won't you be on mission with him? Won't you be on mission with him to seek the salvation and the rescuing of the lost? Because if you are his, if you are one of his lost sheep that he has found, if you are his coin, which he has found, then
1: this is your joy as well. It's not just his. This is your joy as well. So
0: let us live in light of the joy of the Lord and go
1: and preach and teach and equip Our children, our neighbors, our fellow employees, our bosses. Let us leave no joy on the table. Let us not waste this life pursuing vanities. Let us get after it and get some real joy. Let's pray.